You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. song means it is time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. Lois is off today, and it's a cloudy day here in the Sacramento Valley, which is a very strange thing to be saying on May 16th, 2019, that we had 1.3 inches of rain in the Davis area overnight, about an inch plus in the Dixon-Vacaville area, and even more over in the coastal areas. Yes, rain in May when our average rainfall in the month is 0.6 inches for the whole month. Typically, we get 5.4 cloudy days. Normally, our average high is 81 degrees. Well, today, it's 63 degrees going up to a high of 61. That doesn't doesn't make sense. Anyway, it's about as warm as it's going to get today, I would say. Chance of showers. Showers likely continuing today. Chance of showers tonight. Partly sunny Friday, 68 degrees. Here's the part that's a little disconcerting. Friday night, 48 degrees. Saturday, rain likely, 62 degrees as the high on Saturday Showers Saturday night, 51 degrees. Sunday, chance of showers, 66 degrees. And Sunday night, 40 degree, 46, 48 degrees. That's what it says, not 40 degrees, 48 degrees. Monday, slight chance of showers, and that continues Tuesday and Wednesday with the high finally bumping back up on Wednesday to about 72 degrees, running 10 to 15 degrees below average. Lots of rainfall, and as they, I do follow some of the meteorologists over in the Bay Area because they're sort of our leading edge folks, and uh, one of them there, Steve Paulson, who's on KTVU, said on Twitter, the window for thunderstorms today is wide open, already seeing some convective cells popping up before 5 a.m. with the higher sun angle, long days, heating, steep lapse rates, and increased instability all in play, as he said, get ready, and that not just for the Bay Area, but also applies here to the Valley so pretty good chance of some thunder, sh- thunder showers. An inch of rain in May is a mixed blessing. Um, farmers are probably fretting quite a bit, and gardeners have a few things to be concerned about. On the plus side, it means we don't have to water. Normally by now, we'd all be running through our irrigation systems and checking them and making sure for the coverage. Well, with an inch plus of rain and cloudy, cool weather and more rain in the horizon, I'd say we probably don't need to water for at least another week or so. That's the good news. Fred Hoffman, a farmer Fred in Sacramento, posted in, on his Twitter feed, oh, your garden will be fine. Go back to bed. Don't worry about 
peach leaf curl, fire blight, fruit drop, late blight, rust, downy mildew, tomato fruit, cracking, black mold, bacterial speck, root rot, and when the weather warms up but the soil is still wet, wilt diseases. Thanks, Fred, for that cheerful update. But it's true. Uh, this Today's weather is next week's disease problems, and I anticipate that we'll be looking at, after this whole series of cold weather and storms passes, problems with peppers, leaves not developing properly, plants looking kind of stunted, eggplant, okra, if you've got it in the ground, melons probably just sulking because the soil is getting colder than they like. The nights are going to be colder than they like. Tomatoes are going to slow down. Uh, One concern I do have, and I've marked it on my calendar for about seven to eight weeks out, is that fruit that's setting and developing now on young tomato plants you put in two, three weeks ago will be very prone to blossom and rot. And there's really nothing you can do about that because it's weather-related. The strongest correlation that we've seen with the blossom end, the bottom end of the fruit on tomatoes, and the the end of the zucchini squash uh, is another one that gets it, uh, is with cold and cold weather and and wet soil. Those are the two things that seem to correlate at least with blossom and rot. No, there's no preventive. The next fruit should be fine, but something to be aware of. So that's an unfortunate side effect of the weather we're having now. People are kind of enjoying the cooler weather. Great weather for transplanting and dividing perennials and things like that uh, because it's going to be cool and damp for the next week or so. Downside is we're going to see more leaf diseases, probably another round of anthracnose on your sycamore trees, and leaves will be falling, falling some leaf diseases on your roses and so forth. Should you do anything about them? No, wait them out. We guarantee it'll get hot and dry at some point. <laughs> at least in our area, the humidity eventually will plummet and these problems will take care of themselves. What's happening at the UC Davis Arboretum? I do want to mention uh, upcoming events a little further out on this one. Let's see, got to scroll down to it here. Mention it now for those of you that have kids in the area. Camp Shakespeare 2019. Campers will explore two productions from the uh, 2019 season, The Tenth Muse and the Comedy of Errors. They use theater games, acting workshops, culminating in a show. The campers will sharpen their performance skills while having a blast. Camp Shakespeare is July 8th through August 2nd. It is held at the Arboretum Gazebo at the west end of the Arboretum from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. If you're interested in that, maybe have kids that are or would be appropriate for it. Look for the event details at arboretum.ucdavis.edu. I should also like to just mention to you a friend of mine who's a garden ambassador for the California Native Plant Society, Patricia Carpenter, on May 19th is going to have an open garden for people to visit. She has a uh, she started planting California Native plants in her large garden on uh, 2000 says right here 2005. Now has more than 300 species and cultivars of California native plants. You're invited to enjoy the native garden on what she calls a typical late spring day. Well, it may not be that typical, but it'll be lovely. I would think right after some rain would be spectacular. It's about an acre. It's on the slough. It's located west of Davis. um, And um, many of these plants now 10, 12 years old, so they're getting mature. Many things in bloom, of course, with this long, cool weather we're having. And most of our native plants, uh, many of them bloom at the end of the rainy season. So in theory, we're at the end of the rainy season. Patricia is a garden ambassador for the California Native Plant Society, which is kind of a new thing where they have folks that are they're out there and helping to spread the word about California native plants. You can stop by any time. It's a self-guided, as she calls it, garden ramble. There are maps available for use on site. You can get information by going to the CNPS website. That's the California Native Plant Society website, cnps.org. Look for the gardening button. Patricia Carpenter is her name. Her Davis Garden will be open for tours 
Sunday, May 19th, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. If you didn't catch that, you can hit me up by email at davisgardenshow at gmail.com, and I can send you her little brochure. Another important thing to mention right now is that it is our spring fundraising period here at the at KDRT. And if you like the Davis Garden Show and all the other great programming here, then it would be a great time for you to help us out with a donation. In fact, I did this. If you go to the schedule link, I like to do this each year as we're doing the fundraising, and count up the number of locally produced programs that are aired for you each week, all by volunteer DJs, you'll find, I think, 39 is what I came up with. Music and talk and public affairs, that's more than three dozen, some of us do too, local DJs are producing shows across the spectrum for your enjoyment every week. I mean, there's country music and cowboy music and jug band and Hawaiian, classical folk, there's a show devoted to the Grateful Dead, there's a a teen-oriented show, there's gospel music, third streaming, which is the fusion of jazz and classical, I do a jazz show, there are eclectic music shows, that's just the music. And there's talk shows about gardening and sports and healthier and happier living, poetry and stories, current events, all kinds of things produced for you to listen to. And if you enjoy that, well, this is our big fundraiser. We want to keep us on the air, help support the vol- the very small, dedicated station staff, uh, help support the operating costs. Well, you're there looking at that schedule. And when those replay times are for your favorite shows, you can hit the donate button. You will see myriad methods for sending us your contribution, which is appreciated any level you can give to help support community radio. We do thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting KDRT Low Power Grassroots Radio in Davis, California. Okay, questions that have come my way. Let's see here. I'm not usually the one shuffling the paper, so you have to bear with me here. Okay. Email, uh, um, here we go. I'm getting a late start on getting my tomatoes planted. Well, definitely you're not. Are there any varieties you think will be better choices because of that? Uh, As we do get later in the season, by the way, a lot of my tomatoes are in one-gallon cans in nice, rich soil, turning into beautiful, healthy plants sitting on my back porch waiting for me to be able to get out and get them planted. So I'm right in the same boat you are with a whole lot of the varieties that will be going in the ground. It's not uncommon at all for me to still be planting tomatoes uh, Memorial Day weekend or even into June. And as I told you uh, last year, I even did some on the weekend of the 4th of July just to see what would happen. They even gave me 20 to 20 to 40 fruit per plant of the four varieties that I planted then. But as I get later in the season, I do get this question from people coming in in June, for example. Well, a good generalization is the smaller the fruit, the sooner you'll get it and the more you'll get. Uh, you know, it takes a plant more energy to produce a larger fruit. So don't hesitate to keep planting varieties like Whopper or Champion, but also put in some cherry tomatoes, some smaller ones like Juliet, some smaller, smallish ones like Early Girl, which is in the four to eight ounce size range, and they'll come on sooner. Uh, you'll get more total numbers of fruit anyway, even if the same, you know, it, my, my theory is that a tomato vine of a certain size can produce a certain number of pounds of tomatoes. How many fruit that is depends on how big that particular variety is. So it may be 20 Whoppers, 50 early girl and 200 cherry, uh, but the smaller ones are, are just going to give you a better margin of success. Whenever a new gardener comes in, young family planting tomatoes for the first time, I want them to walk out with at least one sun gold or Juliet or red cherry or sweet 100. One of those four, because I know they'll work in almost any situation. And then beyond that, a couple of the medium sized ones, and then go ahead and plant some of the bigger ones as well. 
Here's an interesting one that we wouldn't usually have to worry about here. Is it okay to plant when it's raining? Is it harmful to the plants? If it's too muddy, how long can I hold the plants in the pots they're in? Well, I can answer that one. Weeks if you have to. If it's too cold for peppers to go in the ground, what's the best thing to do? Transplant them or just wait? It is okay to plant when it's raining if you can dig a hole without damaging the soil structure. So if you're digging in loose soil and it's breaking up in your hand like normal soil, uh, then you're fine. If it's coming up slick and muddy, then it's too wet and you should stop because you're actually slicking the sides of it. You're doing structural damage to the soil. So we haven't had that much rain in most parts of the valley here or the Bay Area where you'd have that issue. But if you had been watering right beforehand and then we got an inch of rain, you might need to wait a couple of days. But that's the only issue is whether the so you're going to actually do you know physical damage to the soil. It doesn't harm the plants. Those of you back east know that uh, if you've got leaf diseases on there, Rain is likely to spread them, and you're likely to spread them on your gloves and hands. And so if, you, if, if you're planting in rainy weather or it's threatening, I really urge you to look closely for blight disease spots on the leaves of various types, not just like sunburn because it's been right out of a greenhouse, but distinct spots like early blight, bacterial speck, late blight. There's an issue that you might be in the wet conditions, which are very, very uh, favorable to the spread of those diseases. They might spread more readily. Uh, so perhaps in your areas, if your plants are close together, you might want to hold back here. I'm not concerned about it because as soon as this passes, we're going to be back out of what we would call fungus weather. So I don't think that's a major concern here. In terms of transplant shock, it's quite the opposite of bad. It's about the best weather we could possibly think of for transplanting. But the nights are cold. We're getting down to 49 degrees, and uh, that's not optimal for peppers, eggplant, okra, watermelon, melons in general. Not happy about those night temperatures. And so I had peppers that I had taken out of my small pop-up greenhouse in their four-inch pots, and they went right back into it yesterday. They're going to stay in there until this passes because there's no advantage to putting them out in the ground when we're in these kind of cooler conditions. And the ones I just mentioned, the peppers, the okra, the real heat lovers, watermelons, uh, you might as well wait and here in the valley and in the Bay Area until things warm up to at least more typical average temperatures. Above average would be even better just to get that soil warmed back up. So that raises the question, what do you do with a little plant you bought in a three-inch or four-inch pot while you're trying to hold it? Personally, I do transplant them. I always have at least one or two bags of good quality potting soil at home at this time of year. And if something comes home and it's root-bound, and I know it's going to be several days to a week before I get it in the ground, and I know that things might come up that might make it even longer because that's just the way things go on a farm, um, I'll shift them into a, a used one-gallon can or something about that size with that nice fancy soil because my experience has been the soil gives it a little charge of nitrogen because all these manufacturers now put some extra good organic fertilizer in there. They green up. The tomatoes that I did that to a week ago have already added more than six inches of growth. Their color is great, and I know the roots are expanding, not getting more root bound. So my preference is to transplant them. It does cost you some resources, and you need some space. you got to keep them watered, but I do think it's worth the extra step if you're going to be any delay in getting them planted. So that's what I do. I transplant them. Yes, you could just wait, but then they'll be more root-bound when you plant them, so you might need to tease those roots apart a little bit more. They'll go through a little bit more shock. Here is an interesting general question. I'm going to give a general answer. Is it okay to just water once a week? Well, first of all, you don't need to water right now. Uh, the sprinklers could be turned off for at least about two weeks would be my guess right now. We've got an inch of rain, and we've got a week of Low evapotranspiration everywhere in the Bay Area, perhaps Southern California, I think is also getting hit with a lot of this weather, and here in the Valley. So you don't really need to be watering at the moment, even though we ordinarily would be underway on that. Um, 
my father watered once a week. The last generation watered about once a week. They watered on the weekends, and it seemed to work well in many cases. I'm going to give you a couple of real general principles that have many variables and many exceptions, but they still hold across the board in most situations. Most soils can hold about one to two inches of water per foot of depth, okay? It's variable by soil type. That's the available moisture. After you've saturated the soil, like really flooded it, or it's been a really good rainstorm and then it's drained out, it's, um, the available moisture is typically one to two inches of water per foot of depth. Water use by plants here in the valley, Sacramento Valley, in summer is about one to two inches per week. That's interesting. Uh, we have, we're closer to the two-inch range from July, mid-June, mid July, August, and into early September. But that's the water use by lawns and plants that use that much water. For lower water landscapes, it's half that or even less. So one to two inches per week is a reasonable water use rate for plants. So the soil will hold an inch or two. They use about an inch or two. So that's a pretty good overlap right there. And here's an interesting fact. Most plant roots are in the top foot of soil. So, yes, generally speaking, a very thorough watering once a week that penetrates to a depth of about a foot could be sufficient in many soils much of the time. So, yeah, you probably could get by with watering really thoroughly once a week. And I'd really rather have people doing that than light waterings every day that I see happening with these sprinkler systems or these sub-irrigation systems. Uh, someone just told me about their, their underground drip is running four days a week for X number of minutes, and that's what the landscaper calculated it at. I thought, why don't you try, and I find myself saying this a lot during the summer, why don't you try adding up all those minutes in the course of a week? Let's say it's 15, 20 minutes four times a week. Add all that up, do it all at once. See how the plants do. See how the soil does in terms of going a whole week between waterings. Because then you'd be watering deeper, and you'd be getting the roots deeper, you know, get, getting moisture a little bit further down, and you'd be reducing the risk of crown rot. So try it. Generally speaking, um, that'll work. There are exceptions. The exceptions would be long periods, unusual periods of hot or especially windy weather. You know, and we know that water use by plants is unusually high when it's over 100 degrees or the north wind is blowing. So you might need to water in the fifth or sixth day interval instead of once a week. I'll probably make it to a week if that's what it came down to, or maybe run it a little bit longer. Soils that drain fast, and this is the most important part, and don't retain water as well, will probably need it more often. We'll surely need it more often, and that is your raised planter bed. Uh, if you're doing vegetables in a raised planter and you put sandy soil in, well, that doesn't hold in even barely an inch of water. And so you, freak, you have to water almost always, at least twice a week for raised planters. And many people just find going ahead and watering daily or every other day just seems to give better results. That will depend on the soil you put in, how you build it over time, adding things to help it retain moisture. But that would be a major exception to the, the once-a-week rule. Soils where the infiltration rate... The, white, the rate at which water penetrates into the soil, is so slow due to the clay content. I hear people in West Davis and North Davis perking up their ears going, that's us, that it's hard to put on an inch or two of water all at once. It puddles or it runs off. Well, if you can't put it on all at once, then you can't put on a week's worth of water. You may find that you can by the process of running your system multiple times on the same day or um, uh, at least two days in a row, something like that, rather than trying to uh, run it all at once. In other words, break it up into cycles that are close together and do that once a week. See if you can do that. 
And then there's the larger plants that do have roots that go deeper than that top foot, and that's trees and shrubs and even some plants like tomatoes, you know, which roots will go deeper. They would benefit from occasional separate waterings from what I've described as the summer goes along and temperatures get higher. We found ourselves during the drought asking people, please, you know, you've killed your lawn, you're going to a low-water landscape, please water the big things that we're counting on, that water you were providing to all those other things, uh, please give them some water about once a month. And that did seem to work well. Starting June, July, depending on the year, a very deep soaking, you know, longer than you think is reasonable, uh, about once a month. And that has a couple of benefits. Uh, it'll, it'll correct some of the problems that your sprinkler system might have. It'll, it'll take care of the, uh, the distribution issues that some sprinkler systems have and so forth. So I find myself recommending this long soaking either by the multiple cycles or by bypassing it or get a hose. I mean, you can get a soaker hose if you have to for some of the bigger trees about once a month. And again, we're going to use some jargon here. That's to bring the soil back to field capacity, in other words, have that extra moisture down there that they can, they can tap into when it's hotter or windier. And it gives those larger plants a deeper soaking. Your sprinkler system, no matter how well designed, is not perfect in its distribution. Corners, edges, mounds tend to drain out or dry out faster. Areas close to concrete, close to, to driveways, close to walls get reflected heat and tend to dry out faster. And so this once a month uh, um, adjustment, or you can go around and water those areas individually, but this once a month adjustment seems to take care of a lot of the problems that show up with the the imperfect distribution. We have a technical term for what's happening as the summer goes along. It's called deficit irrigation. You can even Google that term and you'll find all kinds of agricultural research on deficit irrigation of certain crops. So when you're giving a plant, let's say 80% of what it really needs over a period of time, what happens to the plant? In the case of crops, the question is, does it affect their actual yield and does the farmer lose money? In the case of your landscape plants, does it affect their overall performance? Do they grow more slowly? Do the leaves burn and so on? During the drought, we accepted deficit irrigation as causing some cosmetic damage to plants, but not hurting them ultimately in the long run. To avoid that, though, periodically, you can just give that one long, deep soaking. Now, if you've got a smart meter, there are a bunch of different kinds of smart meters out there, uh, smart pro timer, I should say, not meter, your smart timer, it may adjust itself for changes in temperature or things like that, but probably can't make up for imperfections in design or the variation of exposure. So this is why I think that it's probably best if you just periodically resaturate everything to help those bigger and deeper-rooted plants. Question. This is by email. You can send email questions to davisgardenshow at gmail.com. Looking for a ground cover that is in full shade that will grow. Well, okay. I have a hard time. I have a list that I looked up, but I want some expert advice. I like grass, but not if it won't grow in shade. Okay, well, yes, grass will be a real challenge if you have deep shade. If it's partial shade, the fine fescues are reasonably shade tolerant. And uh, they are often planted and then allowed to grow more in a meadow-like appearance, less mowed. They have high growing points. What, mean, what that means is, as a practical matter... If you mow them below two inches in hot weather, they'll thin out really badly. And uh, so a lot of people like to plant these and just let them grow as an informal ground cover rather than as a lawn. If they're going to be part of your lawn and they're in the shade or in the sun, set your mower as high as it will go. So that's the grass that is likely to do well. There's a grass-like plant that will do well in deep shade. That's Mondo grass. I used to live with two fruitless mulberry trees. If any of you have ever gardened with fruitless mulberry trees, you know they're extremely challenging roots. The deepest shade there is, and they're big water hogs. 
I would not recommend a fruitless mulberry tree except for rural residential uh, properties. But um, uh, underneath that fruitless mulberry, after fruitlessly trying to plant lawn over and over and over again, I finally just gave up and started buying flats of Mondo grass, which is a little tight-growing lily turf relative. And I just tucked them in around the roots wherever I could. And over a period of a few years, it gradually became lawn-like in appearance. You can dig up the bigger clumps and divide them in the fall or the spring and just keep spreading them out that way so it isn't too expensive to do this. And you just gradually fill in around them. They never You don't mow it. It's just a ground cover that looks like a grass. So that's the one grass-like plant of, that is particularly suited to deep shade. There's lots of ground covers that can tolerate shade. And I'll just mention a couple. And the key question is how you're going to water. Because some of these like a lot of water and some of them don't need any. A lot of, or much, a lot of plants that are shade plants come from woodland areas, places where there's lots of rainfall, lots of leaf debris, uh, ferns and things would be their companions. And these are plants that would not be suitable for a low water landscape. But others, there are plants that can tolerate both drought and shade. So a juga very popular, likes to be on the dry side. Not dry, dry, like a, like a xeric landscape, but it can take a dry-ish. Once a week watering would be fine for a juga, and it rots if it gets overwatered. Uh, then it's a bunch of forms now. If you want just a ground cover that's flat and looks lawn-like, you look for the old-fashioned, low-growing green or bronze types. There's a bunch with bigger leaves now, and the flowers are kind of pretty. What I have under the shade of my sycamore is the bellflower, Campanula. Porsharskiana, which is one of the types of bellflower, the Serbian bellflower, which they describe as spreading steadily in shade or light sun, not hot afternoon sun. I would say steadily is a good term for it because it has gradually crowded out almost every other ground cover that I had planted under the sycamore tree. It's in full bloom right now. It's very, very pretty. And it's a moderate water use. I would say it's not particularly drought tolerant. It collapses when it's dry. And so it's a plant that does tell you when you need to water. That's what one nice bonus. Serbian bell flower. Um, those of you in areas with better water can grow pachysandra. And you probably know it. If you're back east, it's a very, very common ground cover. I can't remember. The Japanese spurge, I think, is the unpleasant common name. Uh, we don't sell it much here because we, even though we've got better water quality, we still have a high pH. And so my experience with it has always been that it gets kind of anemic in Davis woodland area. But uh, those of you with better water supply can certainly look into Pachysandra. Uh, if, you're, if it's a damp area where you've got lots of ferns and things like that, well, baby's tears grow there just fine. Of course, baby's tears will also just choke out everything else. It'll go right up to the edge where the sun is and stop. It will not grow in the sun. Vinca minor is a nice, well-mannered periwinkle that grows in the shade. Vinca major is an invasive monster that uh, will spread vigorously and is actually considered invasive in the Bay Area. Sort of in between, there is a variegated version of Vinca major that I have in the shade of my redwood trees, and it has spread steadily but never become invasive. In general, variegated plants are less vigorous than their green um, the green original form. If it does revert to green, I'm going to dig that out because that really can take over. Vinca minor is probably a better choice in most cases. Um, I know Lois has this one, and it's done very well for lots of my customers as well. It's the Australian violet, Viola heteracea. It's a violet that spreads but doesn't become insanely rampant. Uh, Makes a very lovely little ground cover in the shade and grows around other things but doesn't overwhelm them the way my Campanula has done. There are a bunch of shrubby things, and I'll just mention a couple that are spreading shrubs. The Emerald Gaiety Euonymus, which has white variegated foliage that turns pink in cold weather. That one is doing very well under my sycamore in the areas where the bellflower hasn't tried to choke it out. 
Uh, Mahonia repens, which is a ground cover form of Mahonia. Mahonias are known, generally known as the Oregon grape uh, or the bigger Chinese Mahonias. These are big dramatic plants. There is a ground cover form, which I now have about a 30-foot area of under my Japanese maples. It's about a foot tall, has a very pretty yellow bloom, very easy to grow, spreads steadily but not rampantly. And uh, Asian jasmine, not the star jasmine, but the Asiatic jasmine, which hugs the ground, shiny leaves, basically never flowers. So what you have is either a shiny dark green leaf or one of the variegated forms that makes a really nice counterpoint to darker green leaves nearby. Those are ground covers for shade or sun. And finally, one of our favorites here at the Davis Garden Show, California native Ribes viburnifolium, which is the Catalina perfume. It's the evergreen member of the uh, current ornamental current group will take considerable shade or a fair bit of sun. And it's a shrub that spreads at ground level, occasionally sends upright shoots that you prune out, otherwise basically makes a ground cover. So those are ground cover plants for the shade. And then continuing on in that vein, we got a great little note here from Sarah over in Kompchi, who a year or so ago had inquired about plants that would grow around the redwood roots where she was having trouble with a lawn. Kompchi is in Mendocino County. Uh, not right on the coast, it's inland a little bit, but it's a cool and rather damp climate compared to here in the valley. And uh, we noted down a bunch of suggestions. Send some lovely pictures. Thank you, Sarah. We always like to see those kinds of pictures. And it looks like ferns are what's working there. And she uh, says, I've started with a few ferns and will slowly add more. Thank you for, uh, I've learned so much from your programs. Thanks. We always appreciate notes like this. Great pictures, by the way. It's really challenging to have a lawn or much of anything growing under coast redwoods. I know I have a couple very large ones. And I've done well with a few things under them. So you do experiment and, uh, and see what works there. I've been very surprised that a couple ostrich ferns that I planted 20 years ago have not just grown and survived. They've thrived in that environment. That vinca major, that variegated version, crawls in around them and looks very pretty with them. So I've done very well with those as long as they get plenty of water. And the, the needle duff from the redwoods, I just leave there to mulch the ferns, and it looks very pretty, pretty much carefree is my experience. Um, she had asked about ground covers for the shade and other plants. I just went out and uh, made a quick notes, made some quick notes about grass-like plants for partial shade and perennials for partial to full shade. So I will take those on in a moment. But first, I'm going to do a little bit of the KDRT business here. So I want to tell you about some of the other programming here. For example, the Folk Brothers, Bill and Peter. Explore an eclectic range of music, including traditional folk of the British Isles in the United States, contemporary singer-songwriters on both sides of the Atlantic, American roots music, plus some of its lesser-known offshoots. You can tune in live Wednesday mornings, 10 to 11 a.m. on KDRT for replay times for the Folk Brothers and all the other great programming here. Just visit kdrt.org and click the Schedule tab. I do want to mention a couple of events related to our spring fundraiser. Today is Thursday, and today... Is it today? No. Nope, that one got canceled due to the rain. Tonight, tomorrow, uh, there will be a big event at Woodstock's Pizza, special spring fundraiser, Friday, May 17th, beginning at 6 p.m. It'll feature live music, singer-songwriter A.J. Hicks. That'll be 8 p.m., hometown Americana All-Stars, Boot Juice at 9.30 p.m. That's at Woodstock's Pizza. For more information on that one, that's the Friday event. You can go to cater.org. And then Saturday... This spring fundraiser continues with a special event at Berryessa Brewing featuring live music from the Nickel Slots at Saturday afternoon, May 18th, starting at 3 p.m. at Berryessa Brewing. So check out both of those events. You can go have some pizza, have a beer, help the, give some money to Catered at the same time. 
kdrt.org. Of course, if you're not local, you can always just write a check and send it to uh, the station here. you got information on that at kdrt.org. Or you can look at the donate button, figure out the ways that you can give a little bit of money, and you can even get a gift. If you're local, you can stop by and pick up some of the classic KDRT t-shirts and women and crew neck cuts for donations of $50, a book by Greg Pallast for a donation of $30, Long Strange Trip, The Untold Story of the Grateful Dead, a Blu-ray DVD for a $50 donation. Just go to kdrt.org slash donate, support the station, have a look at the gifts. You don't have to give those amounts. Any amount is appreciated. You can do it a monthly gift or anything that is within your, your budget. We appreciate your support, and we're always glad to have you listening. Here are my 12 favorite perennials for the shade. Say them slowly. Shade is a challenge. It's uh, much more difficult to get lush color, really pretty colorful plants in the shade. We're often dealing with colorful foliage rather than flowers because there are fewer things to choose from. When downy mildew hit impatience, the bedding plant that was most popular for the shade, it's been about nine or 10 years now that downy mildew came into the industry and was disseminated very rapidly all over the country. And people had the experience of planting impatience beds in their partial shade and then watching them just like melt away, just die down from this, this horrific disease. The spores of which last in the soil for two to three years after you plant them, after you've dealt with this problem. So everybody was trying to get away from them. There weren't that many plants to choose from to replace impatience with for color in the shade. Except we kept saying there are things with colorful leaves like coleus, and there's flowers like begonias. But there's also perennials, and a lot of people found that they had a lot of fun, actually, doing groupings of perennials that gave them color at different seasons or colorful foliage or a tropical look or whatever was more appropriate to their particular design. I'm just going to mention these are not in any particular order. In fact, the first one you may not have heard of. Excuse me, it's called Corridalis lutea. I don't have a common name for it. The Corridalis group, Corridalis with a Y, are they look kind of like columbine foliage and the flowers are showy and there's blue and yellow ones and this lutea has reseeded all down the north side of my house in the shade hellebores a lenten rose and the uh, the uh, uh, let's see there's another version of them hellebores orientalis hellebores corsicus a bunch of different species they've been a whole lot of new cultivars introduced in this group they bloom in the winter here in the valley early early spring in other areas Flowers that look like an old-fashioned single rose, a range of colors now, more colors than there used to be. Tough, tough perennials for the shade, including fairly deep shades. So those are the hellebores. Japanese anemones, which I suggest you use with care because they will spread further and faster than you think, but they give really showy flowers in the late summer and early fall at a challenging time in the garden. And suddenly the anemones, these Japanese anemones pop up and there are the blooms ranging from 18 inches in the very shortest type up to some that get up to four feet, spreading by short rhizomes steadily and persistently, so be aware of that. I have to mention the heucheras and all their cousins. We called the old-fashioned versions coral bells. Heucheras are now grown for the foliage, the colorful leaves, amber colors, black colors, plum-colored, striped versions, white flowers, red flowers, a lot of variation in the heucheras and a lot of variation in how tolerant they are of low water or high temperature or, high or low humidity because the parentage of the different heucheras that I've mentioned in previous shows varies all over the place from some derived from northwestern U.S. species, some derived from southeastern U.S. species, and the old original ones that came from southwestern U.S. species. So you can imagine that they range quite a bit in their tolerance for 
dry California conditions or perhaps your coastal climates for, for those of you listening over in the, the cooler, damper areas. If you are there, I, if I lived there, I'd probably have a lot of heucherellas, which were created by crossing heucheras with tiarellas, which love the foresty conditions and are very soft and sort of ferny looking. They're tougher than they look, but they crossed tiarellas with heucheras to create these heucherellas, which have these amazing colorful foliage, very, very dramatic looking, and a great choices for those of you in somewhat milder climates than here in the hot, dry valley. I mentioned the campanula that's the ground cover under my sycamore. Well, there's a lot of campanulas and bellflowers is the common name that are not ground covers, that are perennial plants with spiky flowers that stand up and give a great bloom, and the plants last for years. So don't forget the other bellflowers when you're looking up campanulas. Um, the larger leaf to jugas, like uh, oh, there's a bunch of names, uh, that have big bronzy leaves or colorful leaves, and also have taller spikes of purple flowers in the ground cover form of ajuga. Lots of cool big ajugas now that you can just buy a few single plants of, mix them around those campanulas, and they'll make a really nice combination. Begonias, as a group, it's a huge, complicated group of plants. Uh, there's tropical begonias, there's subtropical types, there's the kind you use as bedding plants to replace the impatiens, and there are a few that are hardy. Uh, Begonia boliviensis, as the name suggests, comes from higher elevations in Bolivia, and it can go down, I believe, to USDA zones five or six, so that's a very cold, hardy begonia. It does die back, but it resprouts. It also reseeds, by the way, has been the experience of people in greenhouses, and there's been some work done on that particular hardy begonia for some garden cultivars that folks living and listening outside of the California zones we're more accustomed to can consider. Beyond that, there's lots of begonias that'll fill in, give you great color for the summer. Just be aware that most of them are going to be either damaged in USDA zones 9 and 10 or in some cases killed outright. Don't give up on them. Um, half of the begonias that I left on my front porch and just figured I didn't have room for them in the room I normally move them into, they froze back. They looked like they were dead. Half of them are beginning to re-sprout from the base. So never give up on a frosted begonia. It's a good metaphor, a good uh, um, uh, little motto there. Hostas. Well, I should mention them. I don't grow them, but I know lots of people who do, and a lot of you listening in places where they would be one of your first choices. Here we have the garden snail, which is a California specialty. I'm sure there's other parts of the country that have uh, the what we call the French garden snail. It's not native. And they love hostas, but if you happen to be in an area where you don't have a problem with snails or slugs, hostas are, of course, some of the most dramatic-leafed plants for the shade. I did know for a long time a real expert on hostas who lived here in Davis. He had a very large collection of them, over 100 varieties, if I recall. His answer to them was to plant them at least three to four feet apart with bark in between so that each plant was on its own. Uh, rather than having a great big bed of hostas where the snails would get in to start breeding and making larger populations. He said he was able to just get by using snail bait, and there is this, this low-toxicity one called sluggo. He would just do it in the spring when they first flushed up, once or twice more, and that was all he needed to do. Whereas people who have great big beds of hostas, uh, the snails just become a chronic problem. So consider that option. One or two here and there, see how they do. If snails are a big problem in your garden, maybe they aren't worth your time. But they sure do have some dramatic colored leaves. Some of them have very showy flowers, and some of them have fragrant flowers. Bruneras is a group that um, people in coastal areas like a lot, and here in the valley we should consider using them more. The kind of effect of a leathery leaf uh, hosta-like thing that grows at ground level. And lungwort, 
It's one of these common names that we need to change. Ligularia is, again, a very tropical-looking leaf, so that's another cool perennial that works well in the shade. Number 11 is one you've probably never heard of, Raymania, or Chinese foxglove. I planted one one-gallon Raymania in the shade of my birch trees two years ago, and this plant has spread three feet across and now has about 40 spikes of flowers coming up. They're called Chinese foxglove because the flower resembles a foxglove, although it's a flatter type of face on it and uh, incredibly adaptable. It's in a bed where I might have to hit it with a mower every, you know, at the beginning of the season just because I'm mowing taller weeds in the area. It's fine with that. Raymania, R-E-H-M-A-N-N-I-A. And then the last one I'm going to mention just because it's an old-time favorite for a lot of people is Bleeding Heart. However, the Bleeding Heart that you buy uh, as a florist plant in the spring is probably the shortest-lived of the Dicentris, Dicentris spectabilis. That is the biggest flower, the one that you give as a gift to someone who likes Bleeding Heart. But if you're looking for one for your garden, look for the one called Luxuriant or the native western Dicentra called, that has the species name Eximia. Those will last for several years or more. I had a Dicentra Eximia go for over a decade until finally it was crowded out by the same campanula that I mentioned at the start of the program. I'm sure it's down there somewhere, but it's probably gone at this point. But it lasted over a decade. Typically, the other type, two or three years, is all you get. And they get those lovely little heart-shaped blooms in, in long spikes. So the, the bleeding heart, look for luxuriant or Eximia. Uh, grass-like plants uh, that are not grasses. Acorus, the one called Ogon, has golden leaves. That will grow in the shade. Some of the sedges, the Berkeley sedge, uh, which was thought to be a California native. Now it turns out to be European native, but you'll see a lovely stand of it near the redwoods in the arboretum. Makes a great lawn substitute in the shade. And then two grasses that are true grasses that are from forest areas. A Japanese blood grass with red leaves, which will spread. If it has water, it will spread. I want you to know that when you buy it. Or the Japanese forest grass, Hakonicloa, which has beautiful golden leaves, which will make a rather tight little patch in the shade. So those are grasses or grass-like plants. And of course, you know, everywhere in the country practically, I don't know what the northern limit is on turf lily, but Liriope or Liriope will grow in considerable shade, mostly grown just for the fact that they have foliage that's tough and sort of grass-like. But there's two in particular that have very showy flowers. One called Royalty, or Royal Purple, sometimes sold under the name Royal Purple, Royalty, spikes of purple flowers that stand up above the foliage. And then one that's rather rare in the trade is Monroe's white, which has a very showy white flower. And in most cases, white flowers aren't a huge advantage, but when you're in the shade, it really stands out. When it's a, this is a big one, it's a three-foot liriope or liriope that you put towards the back of the bed, and the white flowers really stand out in the shade. At the start, I mentioned some of the flowering things that could be replacements for the, uh, the impatiens. There's coleus bunch of different coleus on the market now. Fibrous begonias, still the same choices, white, pink, and red. I've used that sweet potato vine that you're seeing in a lot of garden centers now, the Ipamoya, uh, which is in the uh, Morning Glory family. Uh, the chartreuse-colored one, planted in a barrel with the caladiums and the cosmos, made a spectacular show and just ran all over the ground. The, the golden green color really stood out in the shade. I just mentioned caladiums, which are a bulb you plant now, May to June, for summer foliage, that big brightly colored spots of leaves on the foliage. And foxgloves and Canterbury bells you plant now or in the fall for next year. If you're in the area and you're walking by my garden center on 5th Street, you'll see a purple Two things with purple flowers out front. People keep coming in and asking about them. The big shrub is the Pride of Madeira that's just finishing bloom. Little spikes of blooms right near the PG&E 
corporation box that's out there, are Canterbury Bells. Canterbury Bells are a classic. They're a Campanula. Once again, we're back to that genus. Classic biennial. You plant them in the spring or fall for bloom the following year. They have these big, it's called cup and saucer plant, big purple or pale lilac or white flowers on spikes that are very long lasting and then the plant dies. So you need to replant them like you do an annual, but it takes two years for them to bloom. We've talked about biennials before. When you plant something, it spends the first year developing a crown or a rosette and a nice big base. It has the ability to make a much bigger flower spike or, or inflorescence. The examples are hollyhocks and uh, the true foxgloves, not the, not the annual forms that are, you know, the old-fashioned foxgloves, the annual forms that many of us sell now bloom about three feet tall. You put in a classic biennial foxglove in the fall or the spring, and the following year you'll get six-foot spikes on it. Same thing goes with the Canterbury Bells. And as I mentioned a couple months ago, in 2020, look for, if you're an Impatience fan, there will be the downy mildew-resistant Impatience varieties probably available in garden centers. Okay. Here's a garden basics question. You should explain this on the air, said someone to me. How do hose end sprayers work? Okay. These are these sprayers that go on the end of a hose, hence the name. And you put whatever it is you're spraying, fertilizer, pesticide, into the little tank part of the sprayer. And you put the top on the hose and you turn it on and the hose mixes water with the solution from the little tank at a fixed rate, in the case of most hose end sprayers, so that it comes out at a certain ratio. Okay, many people, that's the point at which I lose them. Um, if you have a typical hose end sprayer of this type, it'll tell you, let's say you buy a fish emulsion, and you, for some reason you want to spray it instead of drench with it. And the label says to put in two tablespoons per gallon. And you look on the side of the hose end sprayer and you see lines that say one, two, three, four, five, six gallons. And so you put in enough for the number of gallons you want to spray. Let's say you want to do six gallons, and it said two tablespoons. So you put in 12 tablespoons, and you fill it up to that six-gallon line. You put that on the device that's on the end of the hose. You turn it on, and it starts mixing with water and spraying out until it has sprayed six gallons of spray. And I will never forget the lady who looked at me and said, Don, this doesn't hold six gallons of spray. No, it's mixing it. It's got a proportioner in there. It's got an orifice that mixes it at a certain size, at a certain rate with the water that's coming through the hose. So that's how they work. They're mixing it at a calibrated rate. You have one other type of hose end sprayer, which the company that put them out called Dial-A-Pro, where you just pour the stuff in straight, and on top is a little dial, and you set that at the rate you want it to mix with. So you pour that fish emulsion in straight and you want two tablespoons per gallon. We look on the dial and it says two tablespoons. You put that in line with the thing. That changes the orifice size. So it mixes it at a different rate and you get the same thing. You get the number of gallons at the proportioned rate. It seems to be very confusing. They're very handy devices. Let's say you wanted to you know, spray something on your roses to prevent the fungus problem we're getting. Well, they're a really easy way for home gardeners to go. But I do want to mention two other things about them. Um, they uh, move really fast. Uh, they're mixing very quickly. If, those, if the, f the solution in the typical hose end sprayer isn't dropping, it's not working because it should be mixing at a certain rate with the water that's going through. And then it, you've got to move quickly. I mean, you're putting out a lot of stuff. And so it's not a great way to spray weed killers, for example. It's going to get all over the place, and you're going to do damage to something. The other is that that's a tiny little orifice that is mixing 
with. And if you don't rinse them out properly, some of the stuff, the fish emulsion or the pesticide or whatever, it will dry in there. And then they won't be working the same. And so important last step in a, is to rinse them out very thoroughly. You're wearing gloves the whole time you're doing this. And I mean plastic gloves so you don't get fertilizer or pesticide on your hands. And then the last step is to stick your thumb over the end and pulse a little water through there to back some water back through that orifice and clean it out. I hope that helps. They seem to confuse a lot of people, and it's a great way to apply certain kinds of fertilizers um, and, and you know, pesticides if that's what you're doing, uh, but they do seem to confuse people. So that's, that's today's Garden Basics is how do hose-in sprayers work. Weather-related question. Cherries are um, ripening, and it's raining. Is that going to harm them? Yes, it's going to harm them. In point of fact, uh, the rain we're getting right now is going to do a significant amount of damage, unfortunately, potentially, especially if it goes on for several days, to certain crops. If we get any hail, uh, if we get continued rainfall, it'll damage some of the nut crops. The pistachios might split open, and that'll damage the nuts that are inside. But in particular, the soft fruits that are getting close to ripening. Really sad note on my Facebook feed this morning from a U-Pick strawberry grower north of Woodland, that they have hundreds of ripe strawberries out in the field ready to be picked. This rain is going to spoil them. Botrytis, they didn't say this, but what's going to happen is botrytis mold is going to set in. They'll be spoiled in the field. The, the fruit next to the spoiling fruit will be affected. So the kind of what they were saying was um, come get them if you can because they're going to lose a significant part of their early crop, unfortunately, to this weather. And the other crop that's particularly vulnerable is cherries. As they're coloring up, and this is particularly true for Bing, the most popular home garden red cherry. The reason I don't sell this variety, among others, never sold Bing, was that if it's turned red, turning red, and we get late rain, uh, the fruit, the skin is thinner, the fruit rushes, the water rushes into the fruit and it bursts and it splits. And there have been years when there's been rain late in May when 80, 90, 100% of the early cherry crop in the Stockton area has been destroyed by a storm like we're getting now. So the lady wanted to know if she could cover the fruit. And in theory, I guess you could. Um, I don't know whether it's going to do much good, and it would be challenging to do with a tree of any size. Um, basically, what they do, if there's any color on them and commercially, they just start harvesting as fast as they can because they know they're going to lose a lot of the fruit. main thing is, if you're still in a place where you're growing cherries... Other issues with cherries we can talk about. But if, the, if you are, you would stay away from Bing. You'd plant Van or another variety that's less susceptible to splitting or cracking. Um, on the other range of issues with cherries, anything that controls that worm that gets in the fruit? Well, we've been talking about this for a decade now. No, there's not. <laughs> so the answer still is... Commercially, they spray the trees three to five times as the fruit is ripening. I don't think most of my customers are willing to do that. That's why I stopped selling cherry trees several years ago. However, we'll move on to apples and come back to the, the option for both of them. How about coddling moth on apples? Is this a good time to spray for them? Any organic way to protect them? There is an organic spray that you can use. It's called spinosad. This is when they're beginning to get into the apple. And the one thing you can do in both cases, as we've talked about before, is you can bag the fruit in the case of apples. You better hurry because the, uh, the female moths are getting ready to oviposit, and if, you, if they get to the fruit before you put a bag over it, it won't do any good. You can use number four sandwich bags. You can use a Ziploc plastic bag by after cutting the, the corners off so any moisture will drain out. Or you can go online. You can buy fruit bags. You can find them. Great online vendors have them. They look like a little slipper thing. You just slip them over the fruit and pull it tight, and that will keep them out. 
Pretty easy option in the case of apples. And it's not that onerous to do at least a couple dozen fruit that way and make sure at least that many of those prized apples you're growing don't have worms in them. I know lots of people do this, and they, they find it's by far the simplest thing to do to get at least some fruit without worms in it. Well, could you apply that principle to cherries? Sure, except you can't put little wraps around each individual cherry. But before they get any color on the fruit, well, they're still white or straw-colored, you could, in theory, cover the whole tree, not real practical if it's gotten any size, or you could at least cover a branch. And I've talked about this before. You can go get the frost blanket or floating row cover, which you can order online or nurseries sell it, or you can find it at hardware stores. It's a gauze-like material that people use uh, to protect plants from frost and a bunch of other purposes. And I've seen people do this. They'll take a bunch of it. Two of you, will, it'll be a lot easier project with two people. And you wrap it around uh, one whole branch of fruit, and then you just take clothespins and secure it in place. I mentioned this one last week, I think. And as long as you do it tight enough, those fruit flies won't get in there. At least you'll harvest that fruit. And remember one other thing. If you have cherry trees and the fruit is ripening and you're picking them, just look at them. If there's a dimple on there, uh, it's probably been oviposited and there's going to be worms in that particular fruit. If it's perfect, they're fine. No, we don't have any other answer, unfortunately, for that. Speaking of fruit, I just happened to get a... Um, what's new from my my wholesale bare root supplier and they've got a new blueberry <laughs> okay uh, this is kind of uh, if you like cherries and you don't want to deal with the uh, the spotted wing drosophila fruit fly that's been a problem it is possible you'd be happy with a blueberry a blueberry as the name suggests is a cross between a plum and a cherry they ripen later and the advantage of that is that uh, there's an upper temperature range for this fruit fly that gets into the cherries. Above the mid-80s or so, they can't continue to reproduce. And so the cherries are one of the first things that ripens around here. Uh, they turn color and ripen in commercial groves in California late May, early June. And generally beyond that, we're getting up above their, their typical temperature range. We hit eight, upper 80s to 90, they stop. They can't reproduce anymore. Blueberries ripen later. And blueberry, I have one. I have one of the early ones called Sweet Treat. They're really pretty. Um, they're sweet. They're mild. Kids really like them. Uh, they're very uh, easy to pick and eat. There is a pit in there, so you got to eat them just like a cherry, you know, spit the pit out. Um, so it's sort of intermediate between a plum and a cherry, but th that was the first one. There's a bunch of new ones that keep coming on the market. Dave Wilson Nursery is the introducing uh, company with all of these. Flavor Punch ripens in September, first week of September. So that's past the peaches and nectarines and everything else. Uh, the major crop on those, and it's past uh, way past the ripening of the original blueberries. So this is the newest addition to their blueberry collection. Uh, life lives up to its name with a wallop of flavor that will take you by surprise. Uh, they're very pretty. They're not uh, as red. They're more of a, they look sort of like a, they really do look like what they are, which is a cross between a plum and a cherry. Very easy to, to pick and uh, easy to grow, very productive. If you do buy blueberries, pluots, uh, Picotums, any of these what they call interspecific hybrids, hybrids between two rather different types of fruit, uh, the, the uh, nectar plums and so forth, it's important to ask at the time you buy them if they need a pollinizer because actually, I'll just tell you, they do. They all need pollinizers. The only exception that I know of is the aprium, and even that one benefits from having a pollinizer, pollinizer being another kind of tree, and usually not another kind of uh, the same sort of thing. Usually you need either a certain type of plum, or in the case of pluots, two particular ones. So the cross-pollinization, just like with many cherries, 
is specific, and you need to figure out what you you need to have room for two trees in order to grow one blueberry, and uh, it needs to be something you'd like. You can put them very close together. Uh, but you do need to make sure you get the cross-pollinization. I noticed they also have something, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more later, an October ripening peach. Wow. October fest. Sure to please even the pickiest of peach lovers, they say. It's a semi-cling stone. That's a pretty funny term. Uh, extended harvest for a peach. It will hang on the tree for over a month and remain sweet and firm. As we get closer into stone root, stone fruit ripening season, stone fruits are all these things like plums, Pluots, apricots, cherries, peaches, nectarines. I'll talk a little bit more about the advantages and disadvantages of the early ripening and the late ripening varieties of each of those groups. Because some of them, I don't think you want to go late. Late ripening apricots, for example, are more prone to heat damage around the pit, what we call pit burn. And so we generally suggest you here in the valley do earlier ripening ones. But having a late ripening peach that's good quality That'd be a real, real good addition because typically your peaches peak season here, month of July. Some of the really good ones like O'Henry, Rio Oso Gem, or August. Now we're talking about one that'll hang on the tree all the way into October. That'd be a great addition to the to the peach to the stone fruit orchard at your place. I want to mention once again, it is our spring festival for raising money for KDRT, and so we'd love to have you go to cater.org. Click on the, uh, the donate button. It's um, spring is blooming. KDRT is blooming, but could use a little mulch to keep our roots growing. There's a great analogy. If you enjoy the fruits of our labors, wasn't that a great segue? Please consider donating to sustain our health. We depend on listeners to keep this signal on the air so we can get our dose, so you can get your dose of local culture. You can support KDRD today at cater.org. Look for the donate button. Again, cater.org. Donate to give us a little love been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore, 95.7 FM KDRT LP broadcasting from Davis, California.